Are you looking for a new job? Are you hiring but struggling to find diverse and talented candidates? Then we have something that can help, our job board. Head on over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs to browse listings or to place your own. This week on the job board, Matchstick is looking for a messaging director in Atlanta, Georgia. NWEA is looking for an experienced design lead in the Portland, Oregon area. One design company is looking for a creative director. Remote applicants are welcome to apply, but Chicago-based applicants are preferred. Minnesota State University Mankato is looking for an assistant professor of art and design in Mankato, Minnesota. Friendly Design Company is looking for two roles, a part-time business development specialist and a full-time front-end developer. Both roles are open for their Washington, D.C. and Omaha, Nebraska locations. W.W. Norton & Company, Inc. is looking for an associate art director for the Norton Young Readers List in New York City. Butler, Inc. is looking for a project coordinator. This is a remote position. And the National Association of Counties is looking for a graphic designer in Washington, D.C. For just $99, you can post your job listing with us where it will be on our job board for 30 days and we'll spread the word for you about your job to our diverse audience of listeners. We also offer annual job board subscriptions. Make sure to head over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs for more info on these listings. Apply today and tell them you heard about the job through Revision Path. Get started with us and expand your job search today. Revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Revision Path. Thank you so much for tuning in this week. I'm your host, Maurice Cherry. And before we get into this week's interview, I just want to remind you about our literary design anthology, Recognize. Submissions are still open for Recognize. It's our design anthology that features voices from designers of color and indigenous designers, and they submit essays on anything from design critique to design commentary. You should check out the website, recognize.design, to read the first two volumes that we've done. We're currently open for submissions for volume three. This year's theme is Reboot. And we're accepting essays of 3,000 words or less that fit with that theme. You know, be creative with it. Submissions are going to end on May 2nd at 5 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time. Visit recognize.design for more information and to submit your essay today. Also, while I've got your attention, I want to tell you about an upcoming event on April 9th and 10th that I'm sure you're going to want to be a part of. Texas State University's Communication Design Program and the Common Experience are excited to announce the State of Black Design Conference presented by IBM April 9th and 10th. Now, you might remember last year I was a part of the inaugural State of Black Design event. This is continuing on that theme. The theme of this year's conference is Black Design, Past, Present, Future. And the event will bring together aspiring designers with academic and industry professionals for networking opportunities, career development workshops, and important panel discussions with leaders in the field. 
Now, if you're a company that's looking to diversify your workforce, or if you're a designer of color that's looking for your next role, please make sure you attend the State of Black Design Conference. Recruiters, are you listening? Make sure you get on this by April 5th because you're going to want to be a part of this monumental event. Get your tickets today at txstate.edu forward slash black design. That's all one word. Or follow along on Twitter or Instagram. Just search for black design txst, Texas State. Again, all one word. I'll put links to all of this in the show notes. The State of Black Design Conference is presented by IBM with additional sponsorship from Adobe, Sevilla, AIGA, Texas State's College of Fine Arts and Communication, and the School of Art and Design. Now let's take some time out and thank our accessibility sponsor for this episode, Brevity & Wit. Brevity & Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They accomplish this through graphic design, presentations, and workshops around IDEA, Inclusion, Diversity, Equity, and Accessibility. If you're curious to learn how to combine a passion for IDEA with design, check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity and Wit, creative excellence without the grind. Ooh, all right, that was a long intro. Let's get to this interview. This week, I am talking with Joseph Carter Brown, Global UX Manager at Stanley Black & Decker in Baltimore, Maryland. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. Uh, so I'm Joseph Carter Brown. I am a user experience, service design, and design strategy specialist. Uh, I've been in design for over 20 years, started as a kid. I am currently the global UX manager for Stanley Black & Decker, and I'm leading a team of uh, user experience designers, strategists, and researchers helping to bring user experience and the user-centered design focus toward our digital brand and overall design culture. Wow. We definitely will talk more about your work at Stanley Black and Decker just a little bit later. But right now, how has 2021 been treating you so far? 2021 has actually treated me really well. I just bought a house about a few, well, two weeks ago now. So that was uh, coming from a, a kid who was rather had to be rather scrappy throughout childhood and growing up and get into an opportunity to say I can make that happen for myself was was such a, an honor for me, really. But so far, it's been treating me really well. Nice. Over this like past year or so, have you picked up on any like new habits or behaviors about yourself? I had this latent <laughs> introversion that I've, I've regained. It's really funny because, you know, a lot of my work as we talked about previously about with AIGA Baltimore and, and working in this often front-facing space where I had to be in front of people, I, I got used to being an extrovert. And over the pandemic, it reminded me that I actually kind of just like, you know, small, understated experiences, you know, hiking, getting away from people, not, you know, being around <laughs> a whole lot of people. So I just, it's been a way of rekindling my love for maybe just myself and in those small interactions. Yeah. I feel like everyone has gotten closer to their true self in some aspect because of this time, because we just had to spend so much time quarantined or isolated from other people. Yeah, I think it's it's one of those things where I know when the pandemic started, I had, or especially when it really hit, my daughter's birthday, my daughter's 10th birthday was March 13th, 2020. Oh, wow. And I had, yeah, and I had this whole 
amazing like surprise trip for her. We were going to go somewhere we had never been. I designed a website for it. I did all of these things. And then I had to cancel that over, you know, just the day before we were supposed to leave and it was supposed to happen. Um, I had like this new job opportunity lined up that got washed away. My girlfriend is a nurse. And so I was nervous about her going into work. My ex-wife got sick with COVID actually. So I'm concerned about, you know, is she going to be sick? And I kind of had to take a step back and just sit and do a lot of reading and look at myself and say, no matter what happens, who are you? (laughs) You know, and I had to ask myself that question and really like go inside for a while and understand my values and myself as a person. So I think that was an important moment. And, And fortunately, everybody, okay everybody's so safe and healthy and all of that and but it was definitely a moment of reflection for me wow i bet that's a lot wow <laughs> yeah, <it's> more, <laughs> yeah just more gray hairs on my head is, is what it provided <laughs> so let's talk about your work at at stanley black and decker which i mean in case people don't know like that is a huge, huge business. Of course, you can probably infer from the name of the company. There's two brands, Stanley, Black & Decker. There's like a dozen or so brands of consumer goods and manufacturing goods and stuff. The business has been around for over 150 years, and you serve as their global UX manager. Tell me a bit about what you do. <laughs> yeah, so it's uh, it's probably as daunting as it sounds. I am there to really help bring a structure to how they approach digital brand engagements. I have a team of about six or seven designers, strategists, and researchers, and uh, we're currently working on really working to reshape the way user experience is done throughout the global brand. One of the things I find interesting is with this old, long-in-the-tooth organization, A lot of their understanding of the digital space is also growing. So there's a lot of teaching that that we have to do, a lot of mindset shift that we have to do. So it's a lot of work in helping teams internally understand how to collaborate because so much of it for so long has been about working to uh, people build their silos and people working in these very tight knit groups and you know, I'm kind of the kick in the door type of person like, no, we bring everything together. We show our work, we show our dirt, we we show our ugly, and we just go and we work together and we build this together. And sometimes that's a little bit uncomfortable for people and especially for teams that are used to to having this very tight knit, closed fisted environment. So it's a lot about really organizational transformation as much as it's about digital transformation within the organization. And it feels like we're kind of tackling both right now. I'm glad that you mentioned that about, you know, kind of the work that you're doing, how it focuses on the global brand, because I was even thinking, you know, as I was doing research for this interview, like, where does UX come into a company like Stanley Black and Decker? Like, I would imagine maybe for the the actual, like, websites or something? I'm not sure. I mean, when you say the global brand, can you talk about just what some of those touch points are? Yeah. So, you know, one of the really tricky things that we're dealing with is we're a global brand. So we have to think about not just how, say, a Black & Decker site is presented to someone in the U.S. We have to think about how it presents in Latin America, Germany, Asia, Asia, 
Australia, all of these places. So it really becomes about understanding, dealing with cultural difference, cultural expectation, cultural norms. It has a lot to do with understanding just communication and setting proper expectations. And it's also about not just control, but flexibility and letting go. Like, where do you compromise and where do you let go of the reins uh, and understand that, you know, you can't do everything. So some of it's about just creating guides and helping people move in the direction that you like them to be. But yeah, so a lot of our, our work is, is particularly around the websites and the digital experience to start. But when I look at user experience, I like to call user experience the customer service of branding. It's the thing that you have to do where you have to think about how every step of the way is managed. And, and especially now, I mean, every the key touch points that we have are digital, right? Like all of us have probably been in our house, houses at home and doing everything mm-hmm. uh, virtually. So the experience that you create in the digital space is so much more important now, but it's been going that way for so long. So I think that it has a, a big role to play on the external end. And then on the internal end, you know, I think that there's the the aspect of user experience or maybe an offshoot of it, which is called service design, which is an area where I tend to specialize, which is really about coordinating teams and internal components to make sure that what you're creating is actually feasible for those externally. So one of my, my favorite examples or illustrations of that is like, you know, I used to always work with people, especially when I was in an agency and, you know, everybody would come and say, there was a time where everybody would come and say, we want a blog. (laughs) these companies are like we need to engage with people we're going to have a blog and everybody's going to come to our blog but then you start to dig into it and you say well how are you going to support this blog and it's like well we'll do a couple posts a week well who's writing those posts i'll do it okay do you have the time to do that not really i'll make my assistant do it okay does your assistant know how to write (laughs) no not really you know and then you know so service design is really about making sure that ensuring really I would say an equitable user experience by making sure that you're serving the internal components in a way that's feasible. Because it's like if you're going to start a process that you can't actually support or you're not willing to put the resources up to support, then what's going to happen is you're going to put something out there that won't support the people that you intend it for and you're just going to fall short. So either divert your plan or put your money where your mouth is. And I think that that's another part of important part that user experience plays with the service design discipline and something that I think we play as a role within Stanley Black and Decker is understanding feasibility and not just let's create something and and throw it out there and hope that users want to interact with it. Yeah. And I would say also just because of the types of deliverables, goods, et cetera, that you make, you know, because it works in so many different types of, fields and different parts of the country, different parts of the world, et cetera. Like there's almost a expectation of, of that reliability anyway. Oh, for sure. And, you know, I think that's really important. Part of it is that experience extends from the product that you make that's tangible to just, again, those intangible interactions that you have Mm -hmm. 
And that's why, like I said, I think it's that it's the customer service of branding. You know, it's if I need to reach out to customer service, if I need to register a product, if I need to do any of these things, if you hinder my process anyway through, throughout it, I'm going to get annoyed, you know, and, and I'm yeah. someone who's a stickler for poor customer service. I mean, I've grown up in a service environment. You know, I, I my family was service oriented. I worked for Apple and that was all about customer service. <laughs> and so I've just grown up about service. And so when I have bad customer service, when I see bad, just things that aren't thoughtful, I, I, I tend to get a little bit frustrated. So I try to put that into the work that I do as well. What does an average day look like for you? I mean, you mentioned you have this team of researchers and strategists, but like how many people are reporting to you? Like, do you have a lot of meetings? How does an average day work? Yeah, we, we tend to have a whole lot of meetings and that can be a little bit daunting at times. You got to kind of block out your calendar to make sure that you you make some time for yourself on an average day. So I have about I have six reports, four direct reports and then two other members on my team who also kind of filter up to me. So in total, my entire team, including myself, is seven people with two of them being in the strategist research realm and the rest really being more on design, development, or uh, even engineering side of things. On a given day, you know, it might be batting a number of of meetings and uh, working on strategies for some particular projects that are working on being launched. Sometimes it's just kind of creating communications because so much of what we do, and I have to often remind my team that there's a part of what we do, which is selling, you know, it's not just about creating the deliverable and it's not just about getting it done, but it's about selling to other executives within the company, why the work we're doing is valuable. So one of the main things here is that it's been my team. In fact, I started in September of 2020 and my team really started maybe a month or two before me. And then I came in to, to, to lead the team. So it's still relatively new, but a lot of my day to day is really just working on testing plans, research plans, deliverable plans for visual designs and website launch projects that we're working on, kind of looking at what's on the horizon and trying to see what's a little bit past the horizon to to set a plan, making sure it's kind of like being a coach in, in a lot of ways, making sure all of the pieces are in the right place so that right in front of your face it can be handled, but also having the other pieces in place, looking down the line to see what might be coming and then making a plan for that. So sometimes I, I like to call it building the plane while you're fly, flying it, but that's yeah. it. A lot of what uh, my days days are like. Wow. I mean, I can imagine that's a lot to sort of juggle, even with not that many reports. I mean, it sort of trickles down because of how large your organization is, you know? Yeah. I mean, and, and you know, there's so many different stakeholders that you have to take into account. So a lot of times I, I try to make sure I'm having temperature checks. Like even today we had our team meeting and I had a just a temperature check. Like, how's everybody feeling? Where yeah. are you frustrated? Where do you need help? You know, where can I be providing, you know, and sometimes it's kind of like the player coach idea even, you know, sometimes it's like, all right, I need to stop looking so high level, jump down in the weeds with the rest of the team and just knock some things out. Sometimes it's like, okay, let me take a step back, see what's on the horizon, help set up a plan, put pieces together. Sometimes it's working with other leaders throughout the organization is kind of understand where their concerns are, where their focus is, and then help set a plan for, okay, 
this is how we're going to kind of help support you. There's definitely a lot to juggle. Mm. And now you've said you've only been there since September. So you started fairly recently. (laughs) I bring that up because there was an incident last year that happened that sort of brought you into this new role. Can you talk about what happened? Yeah. So it was a really interesting thing that happened. I was working for a, um, a publishing company and, you know, when the, the pandemic hit, like I mentioned, there was another job opportunity that kind of got nuked because of the pandemic. And at the time I grown a little bit leery of some of the practices, just the way the organization was treating people as I kind of sat and watched. And again, really had to do that introspection of, who am I? What do I believe in? I started noticing that we were publishing a site. It was a financial publishing firm. And we had a news site that if you imagine who your common financial investor type might be, who has a lot of money and is trying to figure out ways to make more money, you can probably imagine that they're a little more conservative, a little more right-leaning. And I'm someone who believes that, hey, people have their voice. As long as you're not challenging anyone or my humanity, <laughs> then mm-hmm. you know you get to have your views. And we had a site that I'd kind of built the strategy around that was geared a little bit more to right conservative views. And I noticed that over the time, it was getting a little bit more, the editors were getting a little bit more sensationalist, which was something that I told them ethically I didn't agree with early on. And as I kind of watched the pandemic unfold and I I started watching the conversations around it, and there was this long thread in, you know, April into May about the adverse and disproportionate effects of the pandemic on black people, brown people, and underrepresented groups in general, I started noticing that this news site never mentioned any of that. Mm. And so I went, well, this is kind of strange. You know, there's been a lot of conversation around this. Why wouldn't you mention this? And so I just kind of kept my eye on it. And, and in some of our team meetings, I was uh, I was planning to bring it up, but I uh, didn't get the opportunity because I had to miss one and some different things happened. But in missing one of those and, and having to skip a couple around the time just before our next ones, the Aubrey killing had happened. Okay, And, you know, so I said, well, let me go check in and see how they're talking about it. And there was no mention of it. And I go, well, this guy's name doesn't show up. Like, why wouldn't this be? This is news. Why aren't you talking about this? And then around the same time, there was the first mention of the disproportionate effects of the pandemic was labeled as people are getting affected, uh, worse affected in blue states than red states. And I go, well, that's a really disgusting way to, to talk about people, talk about humans and, and kind of not talk about the, you know, I'm going to talk about the race disparity and, and the, the systematic racism that provides the reason for some of this. But you can talk about blue versus red as a way to dehumanize. So Ahmed Aubrey happened. Then there was the, um, what was the Amy Cooper situation that happened with the. Oh, yeah. In, the, in Central Park. Yeah. Right. So that happened. You know, we had Brianna Taylor start to get brought up and, you know, no worries about any of these. And I'm going, there's so many reasons to talk about this. And then, of course, there was George Floyd. And, and I'm at this point, you know, steam is coming out of my ears and I'm going, there's no way you missed this one. Right. No way. And they never talked about it until that Friday after when there were some riots and you know protests got a little more violent. And the first mention of it was it was of the headline that said, 
black man's death while in police custody sparks riots, arson, and looting. And that was kind of when I just banged on the desk and said, come on, guys, like this can't be the, the way you're doing it. You're leaving me no option here. So, yeah, you know, in one of our next team meetings the next week, I asked them and I just brought it up straight up and, and kind of explained it the way I just explained it to you and said, well, what's wrong here? First got a lot of kind of mealy mouth responses of like, oh, well, we just didn't know how to explain it. And so many of our, our readers are racist and we don't want our advertisers to think that. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. And so at that point, I was my heels were dug in. I'm a pretty stubborn person when I want to be. So I was just like, we're having this conversation. Yeah. Um, and finally, there was a you know, our organization was rather small. I was one of only two black people and the other black person in the organization. She spoke up and said, yeah, I've actually noticed this, too, and I'm uncomfortable with it. And there was a lot of kind of dismissing of the ideas going, oh, you just don't get it. You don't understand. Oh, well who cares? This isn't a big deal. You're just angry. You're just this, that, and the other. And never was there a moment where somebody said, Hey, how about you help us here? How can we fill these blind spots? And I'm going, you know, so you're clearly just not valuing the voices. So like I said, that was of that moment where I really had to look at myself and I said, well, I make these websites. I'm the (laughs) catalyst that makes this whole thing go. Uh And I said, one more minute of of time to this organization is supporting this kind of white supremacist culture and racist. If you're not overtly racist, you're you're aiding and abetting racist yeah. <laughs> within within your readership, and you're making a comfortable space for them. You know, so I said I can't do that. So the next day, I just said I'm out. Can't do it anymore. Effective immediately. You know, I'm gone. And this was beginning of June, <laughs> and so it was like, unfortunately. Like I said, there were some things that happened from a a just kind of personal moral standing that made me a little bit questionable about them. So fortunately, I was saving as much money as I could and I had enough in the in the nest to kind of cushion myself for a little while. But, yeah, it was definitely a, a crazy moment. Well, props to you for not only standing up in that situation, but also being able to walk away from it, especially, you know, during such a unpredictable time. I mean, you definitely upgraded. So that's a good thing. Uh, yeah, thank you. Uh, <laughs> it, it definitely was. a. It was again, it was a scary moment. Yeah. But, you know, the thing it, it really also brought to mind for me was it made me really s- kind of sad because, you know, this was an organization that even though I was part of one of the smaller divisions, it was a actually rather big organization, about 1600 employees in the Baltimore area. And they have multiple divisions and a lot of different things that are happening. And it just made me sad for the people who didn't have that choice, who didn't have the cushion or the the opportunity, the privilege to say, I can kind of step back on my laurels. And they kind of had to grin and bear it. And I kind of thought about all of the black and brown LGBTQ people and all of these different things, women who just have to deal with, you know, many of the sexist views that are getting put out there. And because, you know, you got to survive and it's like, I can't blame you, but it just really made me kind of sad that people, you know, we still have to deal with that type of thing. And I hate to say we still have to, because I feel like that's such a cliche thing to say, but yeah, it just made me really sad that that was a thing that, you know, I had to fight over and then leave a job over. It couldn't have been a situation where they said, huh, you know what? Let us at least reflect. Let us be honest about it. Let us be open about it it was more of like eh too bad so sad yeah i was even told we work for the mob get over it 
Wow. Well, I guess in a way that is sort of honest. They're not trying yeah, to. I guess they're not covering it up with a black square on Instagram or anything. They're just <laughs> right, letting you know exactly. right out, flat out. Yeah, wow. Yeah. Let's turn the page from that. <laughs> um, now I know you grew up here in Atlanta, so tell me what it was like for you, like growing up here and being exposed to art and design and everything. Yeah. So yeah, I moved from Baltimore when I was about nine or ten and came to Atlanta. Atlanta was a, a culture shock for me. In Baltimore, it was Baltimore has this this reputation or this nickname of Smalltimore. You have a lot of small little communities, and you can you can interact with a lot of different cultures and a lot of different environments. And I really loved a lot of that with within Baltimore. And even though Baltimore has a lot of kind of a, a racist history with a number of of things that happen in it, I think I had rather diverse group of friends I remember as a kid and, and, you know, classmates and different things like that to coming into Atlanta. It was one of those things where you really saw the way things were separated. You know, we moved right at the begin, just before the Olympics came or so it was like 91, 92. And there was still the conversation of like the Techwood community in Atlanta. Yeah. You know, getting basically, you know, a really heavy conversation around gentrification where they moved a whole group of people to make way for the Olympic Village and they wanted to basically get rid of the undesirables, you know. And you know, my family was in community activism. My dad was a was was a you know, a musician, but also a very active in in black rights and and just speaking up for people. If you are familiar with Jose Williams. Yeah, Jose Williams was like my grandfather. I really kind of look at him in that that light, you know. We always kind of were doing Jose's Feed the Hungry, Feed the Homeless. Mm -hmm. We were always doing different things around that and, and spent a lot of time around him and with him. You know, my dad worked with Curtis Mayfield, so I spent some time in, you know, wow. with him. Yeah, so it, it was an interesting thing, you know, to kind of come in and be in this environment where... I didn't talk like the other other black kids. I didn't have the same type of accent. I didn't have all of those types of things. And so it was also kind of interesting because I also had to deal a lot of, a lot with identity in terms of how people perceived me. You know, a lot of, you know, black kids going, "Oh, why do you talk so white?" And I was just like, "No, this is how I talk. This is just me. I'm not I'm not trying to be anything. I have zero interest in being anything other than myself, but this is just how I talk, you know, to, to having to um, go to a, a school uh, in Sandy Springs, in fact, and deal with racist, overtly racist uh, yeah. attitudes and kind of being called the N-word in class and, and the kid basically getting sent to the principal for a little bit and coming right back with no no extra conversation about it. And when mm -hmm. my dad asked the, the principal why there was no further conversation, he just says, eh. Black kids, you got to punish. White kids, you just give them a look and they're good. You know, yeah. And so there were so many, so many little things, and even just the the idea of not getting that opportunity to be recognized for who for my abilities. You know, having a teacher who I felt like I, I clashed a lot with, I didn't respond to really. Yeah, really didn't have any response to to the point where I was skipping, missing work and doing all those things to having a new teacher come in, a substitute for a little while who really said, oh, actually, you're pretty good at math. 
Why are you doing this math class? Why are you doing like the remedial math when you should actually be doing advanced math? And then going, oh, he actually does know something, you know, and just kind of like those feelings of being this being ostracized in so many spaces to which really led me to being homeschooled. While that was a, a challenge, you know, it was difficult adjusting to that. You know, you're I was what, 10, 10, 11, kind of going, oh, I don't have to go to school a day. I guess I can hang out and watch cartoons <laughs> now, right? Um, to having to learn like, oh, wait, I got to go and get it on my own. I got to figure this out. And that was actually how I got into design. I was a tinkerer. I call I, I like to call myself a, a hacker in that sense. And, and in the sense of being a tinkerer, I like to take apart electronics and try and put them back together to see if I get them working again. I like to, you know, just mess with things and see what I could figure out about it, see what the underpinnings of things were. So I really enjoy, you know, having access to, you know, I could get I get an old computer from a thrift thrift store and take it apart and see if I can get it working again. But I was also really interested in journalism. And probably when I was about 14 or 15, I actually wrote these. Uh, I was in this, super into sports in general, but I was really heavily into it then, and, and especially basketball. And I wrote these like five or six, maybe more articles of just original content for myself. And I designed it in, in uh, Microsoft Publisher at the time, you know, just on, on my family's uh, old computer and was really proud of it printed it out as this newsletter. My dad wanted to share it with everybody. And I went to print out a new copy of it after he had given all of them away. And when I went to open it, the file corrupted and I lost all of my work. Oh, yeah. And, you know, and so kind of, again, being very service oriented, the first thing I said to myself was never again, like, I'm going to figure out how to not have this happen ever again. And so it really just sent me down this, this rabbit hole of, Everything I could learn about computers at that point, I I started reading every little thing I could about the inner workings of computers. And then it just kind of bubbled up. You know, at that point, it was the early stages of the Web, really. And I was getting online and there was an opportunity, you know, GeoCities was a thing. And it was like, well, you can create your own website. So I said, all right, I'll do that and and uh, started messing around with it. But the little WYSIWYG system in it wasn't really anything to me and it was very limited so i said well what's this advanced tab and it just gave me a blank screen and i went well this is cool like this is kind of what i'm looking at you know (laughs) this is an opportunity and so i started learning html and code and like Mm. just absorbing everything i could picking up every book you know my dad always taught me like if you can read it you can learn it so i was just like well you know let me go and learn everything i can about web design now and in you know coding html and css and java javascript xml and all of these different things and what does this do and i ended up building some websites and i was like well this should probably look good this is not enough, you know, just HTML and see And at the time, CSS was barely a spec. So I was like, well, let me learn everything, you know, let me figure out how to make it look good. And my mom was really a catalyst for me. You know, she worked at Kinko's and this is when Kinko still had a computer services department. Yeah. And so I would get in really good with the, uh, 
with the computer services guys. And a lot of them were nerds. They love computers. So they love that I like tinkering with stuff. So they would show me little tricks and ways of working in the command line. And then the more design oriented guys were like, let me show you this program called Photoshop. And I was, you know, I started learning how to make things in Photoshop. And I, they had CDs on uh, like Illustrator and Photoshop training. So I would just sit and absorb everything I could from that and really just taught myself Photoshop and Illustrator. And, you know, that was really kind of, I mean, it went from there. I mean, I, I learned everything I could about everything computers. And I thought learning Photoshop made me a designer. I learned the hard way that was not the case when I realized I didn't know what like DPI or PPI was. And I was trying to print something and it kept coming out really small. And I'm like, but on my screen, it's so big, <laughs> you know, and it's like, well, that's because the resolution is, is off. But that really kind of pushed me down this line. And and I was also a huge lover of Apple. And, and there, you know, that was really where I found my love of, of branding. And it was seeing something that connected with me where it wasn't just this rote memory. It was about a connection. And it was about something that made me feel like I had value. I had somebody talking to me and when they were talking to the weird ones. And I really got into learning everything I could about Apple, again, immersing myself in that. And uh, there was this uh, center. We talked a little bit about the, the Art Institute of Atlanta. And there was a center right across from that in Northside where there was this play, there's this like office building and it had an Apple logo and it had this Apple market center mm-hmm. and they did free seminars. And I would, and so I just started going to those. I'm like 15, <laughs> 16 years old. You know, I'd go to school, I'd go to the art Institute with my sister. She's seven years older than me. And so I go to the school with her and I walk over to the Apple market center and hang out with these like organization, you know, business owners and learn as much as I could about new software and new products. And, you know, I started learning all of that. And then I go over to the school and I get in really good with the tech guys and help them rebuild the networks. And they let me use the computers and I sit in classes and nobody knew I wasn't a student. So that was my way of like stealing my education for a little bit. So it was this really unorthodox path that I took and I can keep going on and on, but I've I've (laughs) told you more than you need to know. But I mean, you know, back in the day, that's kind of how that's how you had to learn it. There weren't really university programs or things like that. You kind of picked up a little bit from a book or you reverse engineered something by viewing source or like you picked things up here and there. And that sort of cobbled together into how you learned how to use the Web and build the Web back then. I remember those times very vividly. Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely was a lot about, again, that hacker mentality, <laughs> you yeah. know, like taking it apart and deconstructing it and trying to rebuild it, seeing what if you took this one piece and put it over here, what would happen and what's the response you get. And I think that was what I really loved about a lot of the design and, and what I still love about design as as part of that. Some of the user experience stuff is I like to call it the science of art in a lot of ways. You know, it's like that high, you know, you take a hypothesis and you iterate off of it. You test it, see what happens and you, you know, adjust your 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 test and see what you know reaction you get from that. And, and, and I just love those types of things. Mm, nice. And now you attended Full Sail University. But before that, you know, you kind of mentioned this Apple Training Center, but you actually got your first job at Apple. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. My first job was at Apple. I was 18. Uh, I opened the Apple store at Linux Square Mall, in fact. Okay. Uh, I probably borderline stalker uh, (laughs) energy 
in that time. But I was so infatuated with Steve Jobs. He was someone who, when I first kind of heard, so you saw the way he talked with so much passion and I just saw the vision that he brought to things. And again, that experience, it was something that just resonated with me. And then I just read so much about his story and his struggles. And he was someone that I saw as maybe a person that I could emulate in some ways or, or even just someone that I could have. I felt like if he could do it, I could do it. You know, obviously he, it wasn't like he was like super poor, but he also went through a lot of hardship in life. He had to go through a lot to get to where he was. He, you know, got kicked out of Apple early on and had to go through this whole journey. And he kind of had this triumph that came back to uh, Apple. And so I was always just inspired by him as a person in his story. And I read so much on, again, the growth and birth of Silicon Valley, which also included him in those stories. And I remember I where I mentioned the bordering uh, stalker energy was was like, I want to reach out to him. I want to make contact with him. I got to send him an email. So I searched everywhere to see if I could find his email. And I had... What was it? I think I was going to the Apple Market Center. I had met a few Apple employees and someone had given me their card and I realized the naming convention for their email addresses. Oh, (laughs) yeah. And so I said, well, if this is how you all if this is how your email is patterned, maybe his email is patterned the same way. So I sent an email to sjobs at Apple and (laughs) I I think the first time I kind of just emailed and said, hey, is this a person? And I got no response. And then I sent another email and I said, Hey, look, you know, if this is actually Steve Jobs, I just want to tell you, I just want to thank you because I was, I'm a homeschool kid. Your the work in creative and education has really inspired me. I've, it's helped me find what I want to do in life. I didn't know where I was going. And now I feel like I have a, have this path. So I'm really appreciative of what you've done with the company and the focus you've brought because it's really helped give me a direction. And so, and I was, like I said, 15 or 16 at the time. And he responded and he said, thanks. And that was all he said. Wow. Yeah. For me, it was like a pink, you know, it was like (laughs) a response. So I said, well, there's someone there. So then I just kind of went off. And this was when they were working on Mac OS 10. Oh my gosh. And so I was following all of the development of Mac OS 10 and I email him like, Hey, Steve, you know, this would be a great feature to include in Mac OS 10. This what is a wild story. I'm sorry. I just have to interject. This is keep going. Keep going. Though. Keep going. Yeah. So I would send them little emails and I'd be like, hey, what about this feature? What if you added spring loaded folders to this thing? And I just started giving them all these ideas and he would never <laughs> respond. But every now and then I would see one of those ideas pop up in, in a build and I was and I'd, I'd like to take credit for it. But it was when they had announced that they were opening Apple stores and I was super excited for it. And I was about 17 and I said, well, there's surely going to be a store announced for Atlanta. Why wouldn't there be, you know? And when they announced the first 10, 11 stores, they had all of these stores, you know, L.A., Washington, D.C., so on and so forth, but none on the roadmap for Atlanta. And so I sent him this really angry email and I said, hey, I'm really disappointed that Apple does not have a plan for a store in Atlanta. If you're saying that your goal for Apple is to double your market share, because at the time Apple was what, two and a half percent market share, and you want to double it from two and a half to five percent, 
the fact that you don't have Atlanta on your list of stores means that you're not that serious about this idea because Atlanta <laughs> has a huge creative community. It's got one of the busiest airports in the country, in the world, if, if anything, a huge tourist community, a huge creative community. All of the markets and verticals that are within Apple's range of market. So for you not to have a store on the pipeline here means that you must not be that serious. And especially as someone who really loves these computers, I just want to have some access to them. So I hope that you all change your course and you decide to open a store in Atlanta. And so a few hours go by and I get an email from a recruiter and she (laughs) says, dear Joseph, Mr. Jobs forwarded your email over to me please send your resume and cover letter at your earliest convenience. And again, I'm a 17-year-old kid, and I'm like, oh, who? A resume and a what? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You know, I I went and, you know, had to develop that really quickly and sent an email. And and at this time, they actually didn't even have a store on the pipeline. Mm -hmm. And again, that stalker energy, one of the ways you would know if Apple was where Apple's roadmap was is you would look at their jobs page. And they would put out, we're looking for employees in this place. And people would go, oh, that must be a store. And so there was no openings in Atlanta for anything like that. And then probably about six months later, you know, there was a a thing where they had openings for a store or they had employee calls in Atlanta. And I, you know, I was reaching out to the recruiter and she reached out and she said, hey, it's going to be slow, but we got your information. You know, I think she was just kind of being like, cool out kid. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But yeah, you know, so uh, next thing I know, I was getting a call and in, in interviewing with a recruiter at 17 and just about to turn 18. <laughs> and, and the next thing I know, in, in April of, of 2003, no, it wasn't 2003, April of 2002, I was going into training as the one of only two full-time Mac specialists to open the Apple Store at Linux Square Mall and, and come, I think, May or I think it was about May was when we opened the store. And yeah, and it was all thanks to, you know, sending a, an email to Steve Jobs. And, and I, I was actually kind of sad when he died. I mean, just for obvious reasons, but I, I a week prior, I thought about it and I said, you know, I looked at where I had gone from that point and I said, I should email him and say, hey, you, you probably didn't think anything of sending this email over. You probably thought you were just getting me out of your hair, but you really kind of changed a lot for me. So, but yeah, that's the, the Apple story. And that was from your first job. Wow. Yeah, that was my I was actually outside working at a as a dishwasher in a, in a Caribbean <laughs> restaurant as like under the table. Uh-huh. My dad, you know, I was like 14. But yes, my first legitimate job. Uh, that is quite a story. Wow. The fact that he even responded back and was forwarding your emails and everything, it just goes to show you, you have to be persistent. I mean, nowadays, I guess that kind of would be a bit stalkery. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I mean, back then, you know, I don't know how many people were really using email in that way like they are now but wow that's something yeah i mean again it goes back to to the idea of you know what i like to call stealing shots and sometimes you just gotta find that sliver of opportunity and and shoot you know and you might make it you might miss it but you gotta shoot yeah so while you were at apple is that when you started going to full sale or was it after that no it was actually well after that uh okay i was I branded myself as an anti-traditionalist <laughs> for a long time. <laughs> you know, I think it was the homeschool thing. And, and at the time of being homeschooled, this was before homeschooling got 
I guess you could say popular, you know, at the time people didn't think people would, I would tell them I was homeschooled and they just were like, Oh, so you're just dumb or, you know, they, or whatever. And so there was a lot of uh, kind of stigma around it. And I was always like, okay, you know, I'm going to buck the trend. I tend to try and buck trends. And so started working at Apple and I was like, well, I've learned all of this stuff. I, you know, I used to read business books. I used to do this, that, and the other. I was like, well, I can figure it out. I'll do it on my own. So I just kind of kept trying to do it. I guess you could say the hard way, but it was also cool. You know I mean? I, I had an opportunity just from the knowledge and, and the, the, I guess the value that I had shown even at Apple and, and things like that. I taught at the creative circus in Atlanta, taught some design classes and so forth. And I mean, I didn't even have a degree really. So I just kind of did my own thing for a really long time. And it wasn't until 2012 that I attended full sale. And it was really era in which after the the great recession, I worked at a newspaper prior. And at the time I started up a small clothing company with some friends and we ran that for about seven years from 2007 to 2014. But in around 2008, 2009, I had gotten laid off from a job at a newspaper in the ad department because, you know, it was a newspaper. So I lost that job. And it was also, again, around the economic downturn. And so I was this guy who felt confident in my abilities. I felt like, hey, I can figure anything out. You can put anything in front of me and I will tackle it and I will figure it out. But I was now this guy without a degree in environment where there were people who had 10 years experience and a degree and they had all of this stuff behind them and they were also in the market. And so I just kind of found it where I was really struggling to get a lot of opportunities or get a lot of second looks. And I'd also had a little bit of a chip on my shoulder or a complex even about Again, you you hear a lot of the way people, again, talk bad about being homeschooled. Yeah. You know, I didn't have formal training. I didn't have all this. So part of me was like, well, can I do it? Can I figure it out? If I'm tested, how will I respond? And and do I have the foundation? You kind of felt like you had something to prove in a way to yourself. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I needed to prove it to myself more than anything that I could just follow through with something and finish it. And so, uh, yeah, uh, I entered into full sales online graphic design program and had done that from 2012 and then graduated in, I think, 2015. How was the program? I know that, you know, as a, I think as a, a for-profit school, full sale kind of tends to get left out of mm-hmm. conversations when people talk about design slash art schools to go to to really sort of get into the industry. But I mean, full sale places a lot of people in the creative fields. Yeah. You know, full sale was interesting for me. And I think that you do see some of that for-profit mentality come in where there is a bit of a, you know, what some people might call a degree factory mindset that that is there in the sense that, hey, if you are willing to give them your money, they will take it. But if you are willing to hold them accountable for taking your money, you will also (laughs) get a lot of value out of that. And for me, it was one of those things where, again, I was doing the online program. Mm -hmm. And I think that I succeeded because I'd already had this scrappy mentality. I was already used to figuring things out and going to finding my way. And so when I went to school, it was also, I was always kind of like against the idea of, of student loans and all of that, especially where I had seen people 
who had been saddled with all this debt and didn't mm. know what they were doing in life or didn't know, you know, had felt like they wasted their time. So I was like, I'm not wasting my time. If I'm paying for this, I'm getting my money's worth. Yeah. And so I kind of went in with this attitude that like I'm paying, you are going to give me the same treatment you give your students in, in person. And I think for people who have gone there in person, they got a great experience. I saw a lot of people who went there online and they didn't have that mentality or they didn't know how to go out and just dig and be scrappy mm. for what they wanted. And they kind of just fell through. Some of them fell off. Some of them were ending their school in some ways graduating. And, and I'm looking at it going, oh, that work is not that great. <laughs> um, uh, you know, but like I said, that was the degree factory of it. But, you know, I, like I said, I went in and I had a goal. I knew what I wanted out of it. And I said, I'm going to kind of make you teach me and do what I need you to do because I'm paying you this money. And actually, I had some great interactions with teachers. I learned a lot. I got a lot out of it. But I think it's really all about what you make it. And and I think it was but I think that's with any school. Right. You know, it's what you make it. And, and I think they were good for for what I wanted to get out of it. Yeah. You know, it's interesting how I don't know. I think school in general can be like that, but, but particularly those those for profit schools. So for graduate school, I went to a for profit university and then later also taught at that for profit university. It was uh, it was I went to Keller Graduate School of Management mm-hmm. and taught at DeVry. And it's interesting, I think, one sort of the perception, of course, that people have about for-profit universities and what that means about the value of the education. But then to be on the other side of it and be an instructor there, I definitely get what you mean about, you know, the online students and you needing to really have that scrappy mentality to get it done because the online instructors do not care. They are most of them are literally following a script to right. go through the course. Like they're teaching in a very abstract way in that most of these classes will have some type of a discussion forum. And right. so you may have to have a participation requirement where you speak to students three times a week, five times a week, et cetera. You know, it's not really the same as like giving a lecture because the lectures oftentimes have already been made for the course. You're just the instructor. You're not really teaching it. I guess I might be giving away some secrets here, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> but like, you're not really teaching it. Like you don't even get a chance to make the tests or change the tests. Yeah. When I taught design at DeVry, I was teaching design to business students. It was like a BIS course. And this was like in, I don't know, maybe like 2011, 2012, something like that, I think. And I was surprised that they were still teaching students how to make web pages using tables. Oh, wow. And I had to take it all the way up to the dean to say, you are setting students up for failure. If they take this course and they think they're going to make web pages out of tables and get a job out in the market. And the dean was sort of like, oh, well, they're business students. It doesn't matter. I'm like, it does matter. It matters that they're paying for this and we're deliberately teaching them old information. I mean, I really had to like lobby to make it happen. And then once they said no, I just changed it myself. And started teaching more CSS and things like that. And I don't know necessarily if the students appreciated it. I mean, I ended up getting fired, so it wasn't necessarily uh, probably the best thing on my end. But like, at least I wanted to make sure that students were getting what they paid for in terms of proper information, you know? Yeah. And I think, I mean, you know, you rather get caught trying, you know? And, exactly. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, and so I think that that's a, a good on you on that. And, and I, I, again, I think that was how I approached it in terms of being a student, which was, I had 
the teacher's email address. I had some kind of messenger option. I might have had, sometimes I had a phone number. So if I didn't have the information I needed, like I would have, I would, I was always about building community. So I even built out a, a, a online, a Facebook community for some of the, especially the students that I saw kind of who, who kind of gave a damn, you know, yeah. I said, Hey, you seem like you're going to be someone that I want to be connected to. Let's yeah. all have this group where we, we help each other. But I saw other people who were like, Oh, I can't get this. I don't know what to do. And I'm like, well, go ask the teacher. Like, Oh, I can't talk to the teacher. I can't find them. Like, okay, we'll try something, you know, like, <laughs> something. You know, figure it out. Like I would call the teacher I would email them. I would message them. I would call my student advisor and say, hey, I need to talk to this teacher. I would be a pain in their butt until they reached out to me because I was like, you know, this is if I were if I were on campus, I would be able to walk up to you and talk to you. Yeah. But since I can't do it, this is what we have to do now. So either take me seriously (laughs) or I will make you take me seriously. I mean, for me, I would have loved if you would have been that kind of student, because I can tell you, being all the instructor in, you never hear from the students, ever, unless it's them trying to weasel their way out of some excuse or if they got caught. I would catch so many students plagiarizing stuff, which you would think would not be that common in a course about web design, but like... Yeah. <laughs> they would take tests and some of the tests would have essay questions and it's like you can tell they just copied and pasted this from some company's about page because the response makes no sense in relation to the question and it's like yeah. i don't even have to run this through turn it in to know that you didn't write this like where are you getting this from so the fact that you were that proactive as a student i hope that your professors and instructors appreciated that because I can tell you from the other side, I would have loved that. It would kill me to see students not do well. And I could tell them, you know, come see me during office hours. Let me know if you have any questions till I'm blue in the face and they do nothing and then fail the course. And then they want to get mad at me and leave me a two star review. Like what? <laughs> right. I, yeah, it's, it's wild. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I think that one of the things that I learned there probably more than anything was it was one of those things where I look back at it and, you know, so I was valedictorian of my class and oh, and, nice. and things like that. And, and I, I kind of looked at that with a little bit of like, eh, who cares? Like, it's huh. about the work. You know, as a designer, it's about the work. Yeah. And I remember when I first started, maybe my first couple quarters, I was doing the work that I knew would get me a passing grade. Like, I'm a competitive person. I want to do the best. I want to be the best. I want to, you know, I don't like losing those types of things. And so there was this moment where when I first started, again, I knew Photoshop, Illustrator, all those tools like the back of my hand. So Mm -hmm. when we would get projects, I did, I understood the coursework. So I would do it well enough to get an A. But I didn't necessarily come out of it learning anything. And I remember toward the end of maybe my second quarter or so, I, I looked. I had to kind of look at myself and I said, you're about to pay a lot of money to basically learn the same things you already know. Is that really worth it? So I said, OK, so now my, my new mo- model went because, again, that competitive aspect of me was like, I want to be valedictorian. And they also had this. um forget what the award was, but it was like, you had the best quality of work. And I was, uh-huh. I was like, I wanted both of those. And so I was like, really trying to aim for that. And I was like, but you know what, really, I want to get I want to learn as much as I can out of this. So I adopted this mentality where it just said, I'm going to try and fail. I was like, I'm going to do things that are so far out of my comfort zone. Huh. I'm going to go way off of what I know. 
and what I know how to do well. And if I get a good grade, awesome. But if I fail, I at least learn. And, you know, I kind of went at it with that approach. I ended up getting even better grades and coming out with more fulfilling work and ended up getting both the awards that I was kind of put on on, that I was trying to like cheat my way to in a way. It also kind of gave me that idea of, uh, you know, I think prior to that, I was doing a lot of things in a safe manner and I was trying to just in some ways in a survival mode. I had been in such a survival mode all my life where I just wanted to do enough to make sure I could go to sleep somewhere and wake up somewhere and eat something, you know, and if that's what I got, that was good. And when I went into and embraced this idea of, you know what, I have another slogan, which I don't, you know, profanity, I'm not going to use it, but FSU, you know, (laughs) S up is, is the term I like to use where it's like, if I don't know what I'm doing, instead of freezing, I'm just going to go and go out in a blaze of glory. And if I fail, Okay, but you're at least going to be like, man, he he did it in a way that nobody can look away from, and uh, mm-hmm. and I found that that's kind of paid off more than it has hurt me. I mean, you know, that's something that I've I've brought up here on the show before about how black designers kind of really need to have that space to fail. I mean, especially if you're approaching the design industry through a more, I guess you could say, traditional route. Like if you went to a design school. And then from there you started working at, I don't know, a product design company or a tech company or advertising agency or, you know, a branding agency or something like that. Like the constraints are so narrow that there's not really any space for you to fail. Or I wouldn't even necessarily say fail. We're, we're talking about that certainly in the, in the guise of experimentation, but like everything you do has to work. Everything has to succeed. And I think while it's great to have that track record, Sort of like you were saying, you were kind of just getting by. It wasn't until you really were able to break out of that space that you were able to do your best work. And it's it's rough that, you know, the industry unfortunately doesn't really allow for those sorts of spaces. I would say mostly for black designers, but I think of designers probably across the board. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think it's glaring for black designers, but I think that you see that in a lot of spaces in general. You know, again, I'm a, I'm a sports fan. I've noticed where, you know, black quarterbacks tend to get criticized more harshly, where it's a guy who is an average quarterback, an average black quarterback will get less chances than an average white quarterback. And I've seen that. And I've noticed that even in professional spaces where, yeah, I mean, both as a design leader and as a, I guess, for lack of a better way of putting it, a design follower, you know, where I was looking for guidance and I was looking for how to be a professional or I was looking for mentorship and I didn't always get it. And I've noticed that even in some of my peers who there's two sides of it. You know, I think as a young black boy, my dad, my mom, everybody, really, you tell me if you had the same experience where you're kind of told like, hey, you're black, you got one shot. Yeah. They're waiting for you to mess up. Don't screw mm-hmm. up because they're just waiting for it because you will be the stereotype who fits the profile. You know, don't fit the profile. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I had that complex. But then if we think about like studies that are around how teachers, for instance, police black bodies and they, they enforce punishment on black children more harshly than white children, even to my, my I think my story about, you know, growing up in school and kind of being told the same thing, you know, you see it at all these walks of life. And I experienced it as, again, as a professional who 
wanted to do a lot of things. And, and, you know, I was even in one of my old companies, I mean, I was being put out there. I was the person who was really able to speak to business owners because I understood business and I could translate what design was to a business person. And I could translate what design was to a developer and I could speak all of these languages. And I was one of the only people in this organization. In fact, maybe the only person who could do that in a way that was effective but I was still getting paid like a junior designer. I was still getting, you know, but when they would take me into these meetings, they would say, here's our senior designer, Joseph Carter Brown. But then I was getting paid as a, as a junior designer. And when I said, hey, look, I'm barely making ends meet. And I was helping to transform how the organization approached design. They didn't understand user experience. They weren't thinking about design and measuring design. They were just developing and hoping design fell in afterward. And I'm saying, hey, Let's build up design. Let's, you know, in, in helping the company win awards and doing all these things. But I'm still getting paid as a junior designer. And I was one of the lower paid designers there. And when I spoke up and said, hey, I would like some opportunity. I would like you to give me a challenge to be who I, I believe I can be. It was like, oh, well, remember this one moment where you slipped up? Yeah, that's why we're not going to help you out here. And, oh. and or, yeah. Or being like, hey, we need you to jump this hurdle. And then I'm the type of person where you tell me something once and I'm going to do it and you don't have to tell me again. So it was like you gave me a hurdle. I'm going to jump it. I'm going to clear it every time. But then when I say, hey, I cleared that hurdle, they go, oh, but you didn't clear that hurdle. And I'm like, well, you never told me that was a hurdle. You know, <laughs> and it was like the moving of the goalposts and all of these little things. So I, I felt that. And then when I went into a design leadership space and I had a black woman who was reporting to me and I had people coming going, oh, well, she's not doing what she needs to do. And she's, you know, screwing up here and she messed this up and she messed that up. And I'm going, you know, and I'm having conversations with her saying, hey, you know, I'm hearing these things. And she's going, nobody told me about this. I didn't know I messed that up. I thought everything was okay. And I'm going, oh, well, who's providing you mentorship? And it's like no one. And I'm go going to them like, well, you guys can't expect her to be doing things perfectly if you're not showing her how to be there. Right. You know, so I'm trying to work with these people and I've seen it where I've seen, you know, other black reports under me coming in and having this fear of pushing themselves or pushing forward. And they're asking, oh, well, you know, before they move, they're going, am I getting it right? And it's just like, no, just go like you just need to go and run. And if you slip, cool, just get back up and keep moving. But it's so heightened and there's such a magnification of like, do not screw up that it feels like you can't even. It's like that in every creative space. We're all creatives, I think. But I definitely think for black people, it's you have this, you're dealing with this history of if you screw up, everybody's going to say, yeah, that's what we expected. And if you screw up, you, you know, it's kind of like the saying where it's what uh, working twice as hard to get half as far. I look at it that I, I like to say that we have twice the expectation in half the time. And I think that's one of the key things that I see is like we expect like black designers, black creatives to be twice as good in half the time, you know, or else it's a negative mark on your character and your professionalism. Woo, you spoke a word there. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I mean, knowing all of this, I mean, this is probably a an obvious question, but what do you do to make sure that that's fostered that feeling of experimentation and such? Or I would say even the space to make mistakes in that way is fostered on your teams. I try to speak to it. I'm someone that I like to say that I have a bit of black privilege. And, and I used to joke uh, to a buddy of mine. I was I'd be like, you know, 
you don't realize how many spaces you'll get elect, you'll get access to when you're a black person who can who speaks proper. You know, I've met so many racist white people who think that they can speak to me in certain ways or they can say things and they think that I agree with them because of the way I, I taught. But it also gives you this ability to kind of to speak truth to power in a way that, you know, you don't always see room for. So I just tend to speak to it, you know, and I think one of the great things about Stanley Black and Decker actually is when I joined there, because of my experience with my last company, I asked them about how they talk about equity and inclusion. And to their credit for a hundred plus year old organization, they have a lot of conversations about this. They try to have the, they encourage these hard conversations. So one of the first things I did with my team was I got, got us all together and my team is made up of, you know, black, white, queer, men, women, so forth. And I brought them all and I had even the person I report to in this meeting. And I said, let's talk about what your identity means to you. What pain points, what do you bring, what baggage do you bring with you? You know, how do you perceive yourself in this space? And, you know, I try to have those hard conversations. I talk to different people and I say, hey, you know, again, I, I speak straight to it. I say, hey, as a black man, sometimes I freak out. If I have a mishap, I give myself a hard time and it scares me because this is the baggage I'm bringing with me. And so I, I say, hey, you know, I need you to make some room and I need you to let me know if where failure is is on your scale and what room I have for failure. And I relay that over to my team and I say, hey, fail, fail fast, get up, make a plan and keep moving. And I try to encourage that. And, you know, I even take one of the reports from my team who's a who's a black man and I've had this direct conversation with him. And I said, look, man, you know, I get like I deal with this in a different way than you do. But we we know what this experience is like and in any way I can provide that, you know, psychological security. I want to at least provide that so that you know, you can grow to be your best self and not trying to be who you think everybody else wants you to be. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I noticed, you know, kind of from just what you're, you're talking about here, we skipped a little bit because uh, I, I want to focus on this shift because we talked about your time at Full Sail. Of course, we've talked about the work you're doing at Stanley Black & Decker. There's some time there in the middle that you were in Atlanta and then eventually you moved back kind of to the DMV area and you were doing a lot of like graphic design work, web design work, et cetera. And you took this shift in 2016 to doing more like UX, like what prompted that shift? It was actually going to full sale. Like I said, I started full sale in 2012. At the time I was also working, doing a lot of freelance work. Again, I'd been laid off from a company I was also running a small clothing company by the name of Rogue Squirrel. So me and four partners, three partners were, you know, doing screen printing and going to shows and selling merchandise. And we were doing like branding and things like that. I was the the web designer as well as the kind of the business person and all the things like the Jamaicans in uh in Living Color. I was doing all <laughs> the floors. When I went to school. I had to reduce a lot of things. So I stopped doing freelance for a while to focus on school. I worked, you know, part time at a few different places. And I always kind of approached everything like everything was designed. In fact, um, the talk I did at the AIGA uh, design conference was called It's Just Freaking Design. And it was about how design in, in all of these areas are, are basically the same. But when I was at Full Sail, like I said, I stopped doing a lot of web work and you know freelance work to focus on school. 
And around the time I was getting close to graduating, I started to get back into the flow of things and doing web work and so forth. And it was around that time that there was a whole lot of conversation, a lot of, you know, you saw the word you or the term UX being put around. And so I said, well, I guess I need to go learn UX coding now. I guess I got to go learn how to code in UX. I didn't know what people were talking about. (laughs) Uh And I started reading about it and it was like, oh, you think about the user and you do blah, blah, blah. And I and I went, that's what I already do. Like, that's how I already approach design. You know, I don't think about this for myself. I think about it for other people. And I look at why they need this thing and I try to advocate for them and I do X, Y, Z. And so I was like, so this is basically what I've already done. This is already what I'm doing. So I just kind of kept going in that direction because I was like, well, this just made it made logical sense to me that that was just the route that you went as a, you know, in, in design, because it's like, if you're not thinking about who you're making it for, then what are you doing? You know? And if you're not talking to the business to understand like what are their goals or or even if it's not a business, it's a community organization, it's a hospital, whatever it is, you're not thinking about what it is, what problem they need to solve. And it's like, well, what are you doing? So to me, it was just kind of like the natural thing. And as someone who was, again, a techie, a business person, a web developer, a graphic designer, I really loved the process and the logical and the like the puzzle of it, you know, like the like the detective work, figuring mm-hmm. out where that thread is that other people don't see and figuring out how to how to pull that out. And so to me, it was like user experience and especially like some of the service design stuff was a natural conclusion of the work I had been doing since I was a kid, really, because it blended all of the things that I was passionate about without having to, because I mean, I never viewed myself as a traditional graphic designer. I'm not the greatest drawer. I'm not, you know, sometimes like it takes me a minute to find the idea, but if you immerse me in, in, you know, having empathy for the person and thinking about how I make the best thing for someone, I wouldn't put too many people's ideas ahead of mine, you know? So Mm -hmm. To me, that was just kind of the natural thing. And so when I had an opportunity, I was working as a developer slash you know, web designer. I said, well, I'm just going to make this what I want it to be. And I'm going to, again, I just started advocating, saying, well, we got to think about how this measures. We got to think about the user. We got to do this. And, and I just kind of kept pushing in that direction. Wow. So... As I'm listening to your story and as you're, you know, sort of saying all this, of course, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that you've also done a lot of work with AIGA, uh, specifically the the Baltimore chapter. Talk to me about how you got started with them. Uh, yeah, so I got involved in AIGA after I had graduated or around the time I had graduated full sale. I had always heard about AIGA as an organization and it was always like, hey, you network, you got to get out there. And, and again, as someone who was now like about to graduate with student debt. I'm like, I need to make some money. I need to get a job. (laughs) And so really to start, it was like going into AIGA. It was like, I wanted to find a job and I wanted to make some connections in the design community because I I was, you know, doing so much freelance stuff. And I was living a little further out outside of Baltimore at the time. I didn't have a lot of connections and so forth. And so it was just a way to, to get connected to the community. But when I got in there, I think, again, I'm a service person. You know, I love helping people. I love figuring out ways to to build things and create systems and so forth. And so, you know, it was just natural that I started getting 
close to the board. If I would show up to an event early, I'm like, all right, well, I'll help you all set up tables. And it's like, okay, I'm going to hang out later. I'm going to help you break down tables, you know? So that was just kind of how I started. And, you know, it really came down, it, it evolved into me really needing to find my identity as well as a designer. Because again, I didn't know where I fit. You know, I, I didn't, uh, again, I wasn't a graphic designer. I wasn't fully a web developer. I wasn't, you know, always the business person. You know, I had all of these, but I had areas that I could fill in. And so I just wanted to find how I fit and who I was as a, a designer. And so that gave me a space to really hone my leadership skill. And I, I, I've actually talked with people within AIJ about this a lot that I think that sometimes they do a disservice to themselves by not embracing themselves, the organization as a leadership incubator, because it, more than anything, it seemed like that type of space for me where it was like, I got a chance to take all of these things and learn how to lead with the skills that I gathered. And it had given me a bit of, again, a, a bit of that experimentation space. It gave me a safe space to, to try things and to test things out. So yeah, I got involved with the AIGA Baltimore chapter. It was at the time, like I said, I was about an hour outside of Baltimore and it was an excuse to come back home, you know, to be near water. I love being near water. So it was like, hey, I'm going to go to the harbor. I'm going to go visit my grandmother. I'm going to do this and I'll go to an event. And I just kind of kept going deeper and deeper. I started as a programming chair, uh, developing events, workshops, and in different ways of reaching out to the community. Moved into programming director, and then eventually vice president, and then president of the chapter. And really, my time there was just again doing the thing that design did for me, which was gave me access. And I just used it as a space to provide access because Baltimore has a huge digital divide. And so I was like, well, how can I provide the platform that we had to lift the voice of the people in the community and use the resources we had, whether it was Adobe partnerships or IBM partnerships to bring those into the community and inform people who wouldn't normally have access to it. That's a really good way to think about AIGA as a leadership incubator. That's a good way to think about it. I mean, you know, different chapters in different cities are are always different. Folks that have listened to this show for any length know how I feel about the Atlanta chapter, but I always will tell people that AIGA is only as strong as its weakest chapter. There certainly are some that do really great work in terms of outreach to the community and other types of programs and things of that nature. I think the organization, even now, it's, I mean, it's what, an over a hundred year old organization. Even now in this time where we're in, we're so distanced in terms of being able to meet up and things like that. Like the organization is, I feel like it's still trying to find its way. It's of course having missteps along the way, as I think any organization is, but I still root for AIGA. I'm not a member, as folks know. I still root for them. I want them to succeed. I want them to do well because I do see the impact that it has in the community and the impact that it can have, you know, on designers if they really kind of, you know, fall into the right right space, you know? Yeah, I, I agree 100%. And, and uh, you know, I, I'm the same way, you know, through all of the as much maligned as it has been over the past few years and some people who are close to me who have had some falling public falling outs and so forth with it. And it, it hurt me and saddened me to see those things happen. At the same time, I don't know that I would be where I am without the opportunity in AIGA. I still have people within the organization and around the organization, close to the organization that I consider very good and close friends and, you know, great collaborators. And, and you know, so it was a great space, you know, so I 
definitely don't want to see it go anywhere, but I want to see it grow uh, in and really build its voice. And, you know, I think that with AIJ Baltimore, the thing that one of the the motto that I kind of left the organization with the chapter with was, you know, we're not AIGA Baltimore, we're Baltimore's AIGA. And that was the way we really approached approached it is like, we went out into the community and we asked people what they wanted. And we said, hey, how do we bring you what you need? You know, how do we provide something for the the city, the organization, uh, yeah, the city? And, you know, how do we support other organizations? And it was like, we were the cheerleaders is the way I, I really started to think of it is like, we're this big organization we will get the the windfall of things like we don't need to go out there trying to like grub for money you know people are going to come to us anyway like we will help other people who are smaller build their voice and we will be the platform that they build their voice on we'll do this you know and so i think that you know that idea of aiga is kind of this incubator space i think it's so it's so stuck in like and i think there are a lot of people who want to say hey we we need traditional graphic design and this you know to be the thing that we are but it's like we're moving into such a a, in a era now where it's so much about the experience it's so much about the connections that you make and if you can be a connector that is more of a benefit than being an artifact maker. And I think AIGA hopefully will kind of embrace that and figure that out and and push itself as a, a place that has now the cachet to provide that access. Like I said, you know, they have all of these these tools and resources. It's like, you know, get involved in communities and like, you know, somebody once said to me at an event and it really like made me think uh, critically about it and that's why about that access point they were like it's expensive to be a designer and it's mm-hmm. like yeah it is and so i was like well how can i make it a little cheaper for somebody you know how can i open like because again i had to steal every shot i had early on i had to you yeah. know freaking steal zip disks sometimes and fonts <laughs> and all of those things and it was all in an effort to like just be something that i felt like i could be and you know there's so many kids who you know don't get that opportunity so they never even know what the edges of the universe might be and yeah. so they never explore that and and that's kind of going back to that idea of that experimentation space and, and providing that access and if aij can provide that i mean i think how much change could they make for equity in the design community that we know we don't have hmm. what do you want to accomplish this year i mean i feel like of course you're at this new new position that you're working with and now you're probably not as involved with AIGA Baltimore because uh, there's a new president there now. But what do you want to to do for this year? Is there anything on your to-do list? Yeah, so on my to-do list this year, um, you know, I took a break from doing a lot of speaking engagements. Uh, I was actually really thankful that AIGA, speaking of them, reached out to me to speak at the design conference uh, in at the end of the year. Uh, so... It's for me, it's about getting back out there as a, as a bit of a thought leader, um, sharing my experiences and, and doing more, you know, workshops and helping to build more strategy, um, growing, just continuing to grow my skill set, but uh, also just continue to expand the conversation around what design is and how we use it as a tool for for good so you know the the 
place I always go back to is how can I use uh, uh, my opportunity to make opportunity for someone else. So, uh, you know, whether it's it's getting more involved in community organizations, um, I'm really interested in, in something that's been, again, stewing in my mind recently as I get a little more time, hopefully, uh, is to get involved in, in supporting opportunities to to help bridge that digital divide that's in the city. Um, I think that's something that's glaring so heavily because of what's out there with COVID and how it uh, changed things. Um, So I'm I'm thinking about a lot of those things, but ultimately I'm just uh, working on getting my feet fully implanted or or cemented in this, uh, in this space helping to really do a lot of organizational transformation within Stanley Black and Decker and then uh, continue to kind of really broaden myself and and put myself a little more out there uh, in that space so that I can kind of use that to to propel uh, other voices. And now, you know, as we sort of think even more into the future, uh, where do you see yourself in the next five years? Like what kind of work do you do you want to be doing? Um, in the next five years, you know, I really want to get into helping communities build equitable spaces for themselves. Um, you know, I, I'd love to do more in the the, the civic design space, uh, you know, helping to uh, bridge communication gaps between communities and cities or states. Uh, local municipalities and businesses to help provide systems that are, uh, again, you know, sustainable and feasible for the people and, and again, equitable for the people within those, those communities. So, uh, ultimately that's kind of, kind of the thing I want to start doing. Um, you know, another area for me is really, uh, diving into the mental health space is something that, you know, I think that there's been so much stigma around and, and I'm happy that, you know, I've kind of pulled, I won't say pulled back on it, but I've seen that there's been a lot more conversation. So it's made me a little more hardened that, you know, uh, it's not as, as big a thing to have to tackle completely. Um, but I definitely, you know, have a, a real passion for the conversation around mental health, especially in black and brown communities. So uh, I actually started a, a small event series within AIJ Baltimore called Well Aware, where we started having these open and more vulnerable conversations. So um, that's something that, you know, in fact, before COVID, I, that was part of my trajectory is I was going to come back to the board and kind of help foster that, um, type of conversation again. Mm. And, uh, so, uh, you know, I think that, uh, between, you know, I think I have a lot of different things as you can probably tell. Um, but I think that, you know, those two areas, helping communities build spaces that allow them to, uh, take advantage and take ownership of their own mental health and the, the systems that are, uh, there for them so that they're more equitable and in, alignment with what is needed is uh, an area that I think will be really important. Well, just to wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work and everything online? Um, yeah, so you can find me. I'm, I'm mostly on social media more than anything lately um, at a Brown creates on Instagram, as well as on Twitter. 
um, you know, on LinkedIn, uh, Joseph Carter Brown. Uh, I'm always happy to connect with people. And then on my website, anthonybrowncreates.com. Uh, so those are the, the key places that, that you can find me. All right. Sounds good. Well, Joseph Carter Brown, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. I mean, the stories that you've told about how you have, have really kind of progressed in this industry and, and really kind of put your, your own stamp on it. I mean, being in the game for over 20 years and all the things that you talked about, it's, it's so clear to me that you have a real passion for this, this community, not just for design, but like for the community around design and to be able to help people to see that this can be a space that you can really grow and thrive in, I think is something that is super important and something that you definitely have been able to show, you know, through your actions, through your words and through your deeds. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Well, thank you. It's been an honor and and, uh, I really appreciate you having me on here. Big, big thanks to Joseph Carter Brown. And of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Joseph and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. And of course, thanks to our wonderful sponsor, Brevity and Wit. Brevity and Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They accomplish this through graphic design, presentations, and workshops around IDEA, Inclusion, Diversity, Equity, and Accessibility. If you're curious to learn how to combine a passion for IDEA with design, check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity and Wit, creative excellence without the grind. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. This podcast is created, hosted, and produced by me, Maurice Cherry, with engineering and editing by RJ Basilio. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. So what did you think of the interview? Better yet, what do you think about Revision Path overall? Don't be a stranger. Talk to us. Hit us up on Twitter or Instagram. Just search for at Revision Path or leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Let the world know about the show because it really helps us grow and it helps reach more people all over the world. As always, thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time.